Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're joined this portion of our program by um, a guest who I've had the pleasure of speaking with before, a lively discussion we had with him at that time. We were talking about a book that he had put together entitled satchel um now he is out with the book entitled bobby kennedy the making of a liberal icon larry ty is joining us on our program he's been an award-winning journalist at the boston globe and a neiman fellow at harvard university he now runs a boston-based training program for medical journalists uh he is the author as i mentioned of the new york times bestseller satchel as well as superman the father of spin Homelands and Rising from the Rails, co-author with Kitty Dukakis of Shock. He joins us by phone on our program. Larry, it's nice to talk with you again. Good morning. Great to be on with you. Um, I say that name, Bobby Kennedy, to you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Liberal icon, a guy who even half a century after his tragic death. The Kennedy name itself, and especially Bobby's name, became a cliché for the great liberal pantheon in American history, and yet that is only half the story of who he was, and maybe not the most interesting half. What intrigued you and prompted you to do this book, to do this story? Two things. One is having grown up in Massachusetts, infused with everything Kennedy, I was totally taken by the family generally and by the member of that family who I think is the least understood, the most provocative, and possibly the most interesting, who is Bobby. But if that was half of it, the other half was having had a sense that there was an untold story about him, that in fact, rather than starting out as the liberal icon he became at the end, he started out as his father's son and as a cold warrior, communist-fearing conservative, and that made where he ended up to me even more interesting. Well, is it your belief then that we kind of have to rethink our image of him? absolutely have to rethink our image of him. And anytime you're writing a biography about anybody, you're using their relatively small life story as a lens into bigger and more compelling issues. And I think we have to rethink who Bobby Kennedy was, but we also can see him as a lens into how America itself was changing from the conservative era of Eisenhower in the 1950s to the era of tumult and change in the 1960s. And Bobby was partly a reflection of that change, and he was partly a cutting-edge leader in trying to steer that change. What would you say if somebody said, well, if we were looking at this in today's lexicon, he could be referred to as a flip-flopper because of the change? So I think that that's a serious concern, and I think that in today's lexicon, we tend to be cynical about politicians and think that if they change, it's because that's where the political winds are blowing. Bobby's change 
in the research that I did on him seems much more heartfelt and seems to defy this whole notion of flip-flopping. And it also defies the notion that he was going with the political winds because many of his changes were going in exactly the opposite direction. At a time when Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan in the 1960s were reacting to all the change going on in America by trying to take us in a more conservative direction and did take us there, Bobby Kennedy was defying those trends and trying to steer the change using his conservative roots but also his liberal, um, new liberal reflections. And he was, I think, on the verge of becoming the tough liberal or the tender conservative that many people have spent the last 50 years pining for. Was he a harbinger of the change that was happening? He was. He was a harbinger of it, and had he lived... So we can go through a million what-ifs when somebody dies tragically like Bobby Kennedy did. But he died on the cusp of his biggest political victory, which was in the California presidential primary. The next day, he was planning to go to Chicago, where Mayor Richard Daley's son tells me that his father was planning to endorse Bobby. And I think the party establishment would have rallied around him. And I think that if anybody in America knew Richard Nixon's vulnerabilities. It was the guy, Bobby Kennedy, who had beat Nixon when he was running his brother Jack's campaign eight years before. So again, we can all speculate, but my what if would have us believe that Bobby Kennedy would have been president and would have taken America in a very different direction. And in terms of what's going on in America today, with the extraordinary racial strife that we're seeing in the last um, in the recent past, in everywhere from Baton Rouge and St. Paul to Dallas, I think Bobby would have addressed some of those issues 50 years ago in a way that might have made them less of a recurring theme 50 years later today. The fact that so many of us grew up in an era where America was basically obsessed with the Kennedys, and some might even argue still is today, is that a difficult thing for those who are younger than us to comprehend? It's difficult because those who are younger than us often don't know much about that history. They don't understand the fascination with the Kennedys, and they don't understand the extraordinary hope. So we don't have much today um, in the way of hope from our political world. Uh, today's candidates running for president start out with unfavorability ratings that are unprecedented. And it's tough to imagine back to a time when leaders and when incredibly young leaders, Bobby Kennedy, when he died, was just 42 years old. And the idea that there was a generation coming along that was offering this kind of promise from the heart of the political establishment is tough to conceive of, and yet I think it's really important, especially today, and especially when somebody like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama would say that Bobby Kennedy was the closest thing to political mentors that they had, um, I think it's really important to understand what he represented and how parts of his message continue to resonate. Where were you when he was killed? I was 13 years old. I was probably on my way to school, and I was devastated. It was within a period from 1963 to 1968, we had lost 
our three most promising leaders, Jack Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and in between Martin Luther King. And there was, if you can remember back to that, this sense that we had been robbed of the sense of hope. It was bad enough to lose Jack, but we had Martin Luther King and Bobby. And then when King went, even the, the most prominent civil rights leaders in America were saying, thank God we at least have Bobby left. And he was in 1968 trying to put together a coalition that was unprecedented of blacks, Hispanics, blue-collar whites that we would later call Reagan Democrats, Native Americans, the dispossessed, the young and old, the poor and even the rich, in a way that we've sort of given up bringing them together. We presume today that America is an, a, a land equally divided, and the only question is who's going to get that 1% or 2% to shift it one way or the other. And back then there was a sense that maybe we could bring people together around common purposes. Bobby Kennedy's widow, Ethel, consented to talk to you. Um, what was that like? So I would like to tell you, first of all, in, in 50 years since her husband died, she hasn't talked publicly about him. And I would like to tell you that it's because I'm charming and convincing and I sort of wooed her into talking to me. I think what happened with her and with lots of the people who I talked to, and I talked to about 400 people, I, would, I think that what was going on is that those people were sensing their own mortality. A Ethel just turned 88, and I think she decided it was me or nobody. And what it was like was, to me, it opened up an entire new set of possibilities in understanding Bobby. It was less that she was loquacious and eloquent than that she let me test every theory I had about her husband, and nobody knew him better personally and in terms of his public life than Ethel. So just one example, if I can take a second, in terms of something that Ethel helped me understand. Bobby Kennedy's first real job after he graduated from law school was working for seven and a half months for Senator Joe McCarthy, the famous red-baiting, table-thumping senator from Wisconsin. And lots of people who are part of the sort of Kennedy myth-making machine have tried to write that off as an asterisk, saying that that was an aberration, it was short, it didn't mean anything. And Ethel helped me understand that Bobby and Joe McCarthy were buddies, that he was, that McCarthy, when he got away from his table-thumping Senate hearing room, could be a very charming guy. And Bobby Kennedy went to work for him and saw him during that time as his mentor. Bobby was an anti-communist. He saw McCarthy as the one guy in America who was standing up effectively against the communists, he failed to see in those early years something he saw clearly in his later years, which was all of McCarthy's victims, that he went much too far. And when you look back at that McCarthy era, the best hearings that McCarthy ever held, the ones that were least um, rabble-rousing, were the hearings that Bobby Kennedy held on why our allies, while we were at war against the communists in Korea, why our allies were trading with the communists and even shipping their troops around. So Bobby Kennedy was a McCarthyite, but he was the best of them. And Ethel helped me see that and lots of other things that people have denied or tried to obfuscate about her husband. The guest who has joined us on our program uh, this Sunday morning, first hour of our program, is Larry Ty. Larry is a veteran reporter with the Boston Globe, worked there for many years. He is joining us, talking with us about um, the book 
Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's actually coming out in paperback uh, this week. And uh, Larry is joining us in this hour of our program to share some thoughts about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy. And also, in a way, kind of relating some of Bobby Kennedy's legacy to events of today. We'll continue in this discussion. He's with us for our entire hour this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Thanks so much for joining us on our program here in our 6 o'clock hour. We move into um, the second portion of our chat with Larry Ty. Uh, Larry is um, somebody who's been a veteran journalist, who's a reporter for a long time with Boston Globe. Uh, he has authored a book entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon, we talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's now coming out in paperback uh, this week. And, you know, one of the things that when we talk about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy, literally we have to also touch upon the battles, Larry, that he had with the Teamsters Union. So probably one of the defining battles in America of the 1950s was the big government versus the allegedly corrupt big union battle. And nobody personified that like Bobby Kennedy and his archenemy, Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters. And that was a battle, if you were Hoffa, you would say that was a battle of the government trying to control the unions, trying to undermine the unions on behalf of big business. If you were Bobby Kennedy, it was a battle to try to save unions by getting rid of allegedly corrupt leaders like Jimmy Hoffa. And these were two of the most tenacious people ever in the Washington scene. Young Senate staffer Bobby Kennedy, who was feeling the height of his power in terms of being able to go after guys like Hoffa, and Jimmy Hoffa, who was running the biggest, most powerful union in America that could literally stop America in its tracks. They controlled trucking, they controlled the commerce of America, and these two guys went head-to-head, and initially it looked like Hoffa had won and in the end, Jimmy Hoffa went to jail when Bobby Kennedy became attorney general. Now, the relationship between Bobby Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, President Kennedy, our 35th president, what was that like, really? So there is today a cliche where people talk about them when, when they're forming a presidential ticket. They talk about the idea of a co-presidency, of having a vice president or somebody else in the senior administration who is so powerful and so important to the president that they become almost like a co-president. The closest thing America ever saw to a true co-presidency was when Jack and Bobby Kennedy were serving together. Bobby was Jack's attorney general. But at different times in that administration, he was the pseudo-CIA director. He had more influence at times on things like how to respond to the Cuban Missile Crisis than the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State did. He was his brother's lieutenant. He was his consigliere. He was his alter ego. They would, as Ethel described it to me, they would not just finish one another's sentences, but at times they didn't even have to say anything because they instinctively, by body language and just by knowing one another, they knew what the other one was about to say. And while Jack was a very strong guy and Bobby was clearly his younger brother, during the critical moments, whether it was civil rights or Cuba 
or how to deal with the Russians during the critical moments when Jack needed somebody who he knew had only his best interests at heart, politically and personally, it was Bobby he always turned to. And that was a really extraordinary moment. And it was generally for Bobby an incredibly positive thing until that day in November 1963, where in one, one motion with a crazy assassin, Bobby lost his best friend, his boss, and his sense of purpose in the world when Jack was killed. And realistically, how did that change him? It changed him. The, the first month after the assassination, Bobby was the nation's mourner-in-chief. Mm-hmm. He was the one who helped rally Jackie and the kids to deal with the loss of their husband-slash-father. He was the one who helped the country with the transition to Lyndon Johnson and legitimized Lyndon Johnson. He was the one who held it together. A month into things, when the country was pulling it together, and when even Jackie was, Bobby lost it. He had what we would today describe as clinical depression that lasted for months. He was, he was um, unable to focus. He would go for long rides in his car in the middle of the night. He was just generally without a sense of purpose. He had his whole notion of what he would do in the world, his, his present and his future, were shattered. He thought about giving it all up. He thought about going and traveling across the world with his family. He thought about teaching. He speculated on lots of things, but the truth was this is a guy who was devoted to public service and public policy, and about eight months after his brother died, he ended up running for senator in New York and giving himself a new sense of purpose, but he was a very different guy then. He was always a balance between the tender and the tough, but the tender started predominating after he felt this sense of vulnerability with Jack's loss. He started reading Greek tragedy. He started having a sense in the world that the power and the hubris of the Kennedys could be shattered again by an assassin's bullet. And it was a very different and I think a better Bobby Kennedy that ultimately emerged from Jack's death. And in terms of how it is that they related, did Bobby Kennedy cover up dalliances by President Kennedy? He covered up lots of things by President Kennedy, and he'd been doing that for years. He covered up the fact that Jack had a very, very serious condition, um, an adrenal condition called Addison's disease. He covered up, and may have even enabled, but definitely covered up um, the dalliances. The, he didn't want that to destroy his brother and to destroy the presidency. Um, he worked with the press as one of the most effective spinmeisters ever. I think Bobby Kennedy, in many ways, was the father of modern campaigns in the best and worst sense. The best sense in terms of doing a kind of organizing district by district that is a winning combination and that was seldom done, and in the worst sense, the kind of hardball campaigning that we now take for granted. You didn't want to mess with Bobby Kennedy. When, when Richard Nixon, the most famous political debate, televised political debate, and the first one probably in American history was Jack Kennedy against Richard Nixon. And when Nixon came by and jokingly asked Bobby how he looked before that debate, when Nixon famously looked like he had a five o'clock shadow and looked miserable, Bobby said, you look great. And I don't know, I don't think I can say on the radio what he said to Jack just before he went on air, but it was, <laughs> kick him somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
when you talk about um, this relationship and talk about Bobby Kennedy and his passion with the civil rights movement, it wasn't always that way, was it? It wasn't always that way with most issues. And let's take civil rights for a second. Bobby Kennedy started out not quite clueless, but pretty close to it. He had His natural instinct was to be empathetic with the plight of blacks and others who were oppressed in America. But he also, as attorney general, was more concerned with protecting his brother. So he suggested to the civil rights folks that they slow things down, that they not embarrass Jack when he was going to Russia to have a... Um, a, con- a meeting with Nikita Khrushchev that he not embarrass that they not embarrass the country and push too hard. He had, after all, while he depended on black support to get his brother elected, he depended also on the support of Democrats in the South who were arch segregationists, and he wanted things to proceed in a legalistic, slow way. It was only after riots in Birmingham, in Montgomery and most famously at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi in Oxford, that Bobby Kennedy saw that his go-slow approach and put federal troops in only after the violence had started, that that was not the way you were going to appease segregationists, that they were not going to be appeased at all, and that he had to take a tougher stand and be as hard-edged as they were. And by the end of his time as Attorney General, he was one of the best friends blacks had, at the beginning, it wasn't that way, and by the time he died, I think I can say, without being contradicted, that Bobby Kennedy was the most popular white man in black America. I'd be remiss also if I did not ask you about the Warren Commission investigation of President Kennedy's assassination. Did Bobby Kennedy believe there was a conspiracy? So I think he believed something went on that wasn't addressed by the Warren Commission, and it was something more than what happened with Lee Harvey Oswald. He was one of the few people close to the situation who was never interviewed by the Warren Commission because he didn't want to be. He always said publicly that he agreed with what they had concluded, and I think privately, based on things that have been written, based on people that I talked to, I think privately two things were going on. One is he realized that it would take his being president to truly open up all of these dark questions and find an answer, and that that was when he planned to do it. The other thing I believe is that he felt a lot of guilt. He wasn't sure with whether what he did in going after Fidel Castro, in going after the mob, in going after Jimmy Hoffa, had somehow backfired and ended up in his brothers being killed. Bobby always assumed that if anybody was assassinated, it would be him, not Jack. And I think that to his last days, he had some sense of nagging guilt that he had somehow played a role in that. If you were alive in 1968, odds are you remember very well some of the events that took place at that time. It was quite the year, shall we say, in terms of developments, strife, protests, a sense of division in this country. And, of course, we had the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, massive protest at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and, of course, the ongoing escalation of 
and the U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam. We're talking with Larry Tai on our program and talking with him about his book that looks at Bobby Kennedy's life. It's entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. It's now out in paperback. More with Larry as we continue on our program this Sunday morning. We're talking with Larry Tai on our program and talking with him about Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon, uh, his new book. Um, he's kind enough to be joining us by phone. Bobby Kennedy's visit to a sharecropper's shack in the Mississippi Delta. What was that like? So I hate to use the word epiphany, but if there were ever epiphany moments, or maybe even a better way to say it, if there were ever moments that we can look back and say that was a defining moment of who he was becoming, it was that moment at the sharecropper's shack. And let me give you a little background on that. So a bunch of senators in Washington hear testimony that there are Americans who are actually starving. And one of the places that it was said that this was going on was in Mississippi. So these senators go down to Jackson, Mississippi, and hold a great public hearing. They hear about hunger and starvation. They hear that there are people in Mississippi who actually have zero income and therefore can't even afford the nominal fee that was charged then for food stamps. And most of the senators do what senators always do. They hear that stuff. They maybe take it to heart, and then they go home to their plush life in Washington. Bobby Kennedy and one other senator decided to stick around, and Bobby said, I want you to show me what you've been telling us about. So they go to the breadbasket, one of the breadbaskets of America, the Mississippi Delta. They are shown around a bunch of shacks where poor people are living. These people, the, the children's stomachs are bloated in a way that suggests malnutrition. There are 15 people living in a tiny shack. Um, and they visit especially one family. And that family, Bobby thinks he's alone in this visit, thinks there are no reporters who are actually nearby in the house with him and can see what he's doing. And he gets down on the floor. There's a young black toddler on the floor um, just playing with his little scraps of food there, cornmeal and other things on the floor. And Bobby gets down on the floor, um, a dirty um, uh, dirt floor with flies swarming around and he tries to make contact with this young child and he spends 15 minutes there in a scene that to me says who Bobby Kennedy is. There are not many people, there may be nobody else in the U.S. Senate then who would not just go visit the shack but in his fancy suit would get down on a dirt floor and spend 15 minutes try, trying to make contact with a child it was impossible to make contact with. And if anybody were watching that, they would not have just noticed the flies swarming overhead. They would have noticed the tears coming down Bobby's face. And this is who Bobby Kennedy was. He related to kids at their eye level. He related to people, in addition to sort of all of his public grandstanding stuff, he related on an incredibly human, empathetic level. And this is the guy, if Jack Kennedy was sort of Pope-like, Bobby Kennedy was a parish priest who could truly relate to people. He came away from that experience in the Mississippi Delta, went back to Washington, and did two things. First, the day, the Sunday afternoon he got back, he was in his estate in suburban Washington in McLean, Virginia, and he told his kids, who were sitting in this enormous dining room with fancy chandeliers, he said, this is what's going on in Mississippi, and it's not something abstract. It is something that I want all of you 
in your lives to do something to help make America a better place. And it's something I was with a couple nights ago, his eldest child, and 50 years later, that message continues to resonate with his family, and they've all taken it very seriously and tried to do something. The other thing that he did is on Monday, he went to visit the Secretary of Agriculture, and he got him to promise that if he could prove that there were people in America with zero income, that the secretary would change the rules for food stamps and make it available to people who had nothing to give in return. Bobby proved it to the secretary. The secretary changed the rules, and people there were fewer people starving in America thanks to Bobby Kennedy's trip. After Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy may have given his best speech ever. I'd like your thoughts on that. So what happened was, Bobby was campaigning for president in 1968 in Indiana. He arrives by plane in Indianapolis and hears that Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. And he was due that night to give a speech in the middle of the black ghetto in Indianapolis. The then mayor of Indianapolis, a guy who went on to become a U.S. senator named Richard Luger, says, you will not go into the ghetto. It's not safe for you, and your being there could cause a riot. Bobby Kennedy says, thanks for the advice, but I'm going. He heads into the ghetto. He tosses away the speech that his aides had written for him, and he delivers for the first time in his life an impassioned discussion of how he felt when his brother Jack was killed. He's telling many people, this nearly all-black audience, he's telling many of them for the first time that Martin King has been killed, and yet his empathy for them and their empathy for him in terms of what he had gone through with his brother created this extraordinary bond that night. And the evidence of it, you don't trust me on the fact that he made a difference. You look at the fact that more than 100 cities in America had race riots the night of Martin Luther King's death, and Indianapolis was not one of them. And I think it was because of what Bobby Kennedy did that night in appealing to people for calm and for compassion and for figuring out where we go in a reasoned way after this. And I would say just one last editorial point is we could sure use some of that sense of direction today. Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon, Larry Ty, the author, talking with us on our program. Larry, as always, wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Certainly good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks, 
and white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. And he once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own de despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people thank you very much I thank all of you who made this possible this evening. All of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned, but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, uh, brought forth all of the effort that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment make. So I thank all of you. Those of you who are here.
Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So, uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It could... Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has... Not only Senator Kennedy... Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get it. Get the gun, Rafer. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rafer. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rafer. Keep people away from him. Keep people away from him. Well, whether you're joining us on Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, or the growing number of folks who are joining us via radio.com, hopefully by now you have downloaded that app and find it to be extremely useful. This is Bob Salter. Thanks so much for joining us on our program that year of 1968, an extremely turbulent one in the history of this country 50 years ago. And the legacy of uh, Bobby Kennedy discussed by Larry Ty appropriately enough on our program. We will move into another discussion that hopefully you're going to find interesting after our top of the hour update. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Edgar Villanueva. Edgar is uh, currently vice president of programs and advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education. And he is joining us to talk with us about an interesting book entitled Decolonizing Wealth. Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. That's quite a title for a book, isn't it? Uh, First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having me. Why that title for the book, by the way? So I am a Native American. I'm enrolled in the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina. And so what I'm doing is bringing an indigenous perspective to the world of philanthropy and finance as a sector that I've worked in for about 14 years. And as a Native American, some might see that as being rare for you to be in the field of philanthropy. How'd you gain access? Absolutely. I'm a very unlikely person uh, to, to, to find myself in this world. Um, I uh, went to school for public health at University of North Carolina, and uh, after graduate school, I was recruited to a foundation uh, in North Carolina that focused on improving the health of communities around the state. And like many people who work in philanthropy, um, I actually didn't know much about the sector, uh, foundations, charities. And uh, I was recruited and interviewed and was really astonished when I learned that if I accepted that position, I would oversee millions of dollars that would be invested into the community. And so, um, of course, being a person that came from poverty, understanding and having lived experience with a lot of the issues that foundations are trying to grapple with, um, I was really excited about the opportunity to actually be at the table and have influence on how resources were being invested in the community. Mm. What is it that you point to, because you talk about this 
in the book and in your work. What would you say ails philanthropy at this point? You know, over the years as I have worked in the sector, I've found that there are a lot of challenges that are, are not known to the common person because we see foundations of philanthropy having missions that are um, very, um, you know, hopeful and aimed at changing the world, which is a good thing. But what actually happens inside foundations when you roll back the curtain um, is a, are a lot of practices that I feel are actually really unfair. We have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One, who is actually around the table deciding where wealth is being invested in communities? Who is actually receiving the money and what communities are actually benefiting from the resources? So as the longer I work in the field, I begin to see that although we had stated missions about improving the health and wellness or the um, helping communities thrive that were living in poverty, um, by far most of the people receiving the resources and the communities receiving their resources were actually folks who were um, privileged. When you look at data um, of where money is being invested by foundations, only about 7 to 8% of foundation grants are being invested in communities of color. So we see a major, major disparity um, in the amount of funding that's being invested in communities of color, which actually um, more often suffer from disparities that are being addressed by foundations. How would we and how could we turn that around? So as a Native American, I bring this concept to money um, known as medicine. In my culture, medicine is anything that we feel like brings us joy, brings us balance, a sense of purpose. Anything can be medicine for us. And um, I, I liken money and, and you know, grants, especially from the perspective of a foundation, as a type of medicine. If we are moving money to places where the hurt is the worst, in other words, putting medicine in places where people are the most sick, then we will begin to see that balance occur. And where the hurt is the worst in this country or in communities of color, we see uh, the worst health statistics. We see the lowest educational um, opportunities. We see the greatest inequities. And so I'm encouraging foundations and investors to really look at the data behind their giving and their investments and be sure that they are moving that money to where the hurt is the worst. And that's one way we can begin to achieve um, that balance. Okay, then what is it that's going to actually motivate that to happen? You know, I think um, foundations in this country are highly unregulated. Um, And one of the challenges is when you look at the leadership of foundations, they're mostly white. Um, The way that wealth has been accumulated in this country, we see um, that most wealth sits with white individuals and the white families. So most of the foundations in the country Um, have been established by by white folks. And the leadership of these foundations are are largely white. So, for example, more than 85% of the board of directors um, for foundations are white, mostly white men. 
Um, and then more than 90% of the CEOs or executive directors or foundations are white and more than 75% of the staff. And so one simple solution when you're thinking about how to shift where resources are going um, is to look at the diversity and the representation of who is working in these institutions. And so um, by diversi diversifying the staff of foundations, you're going to bring in different perspectives and different lived experiences like myself, where I've been able to come in and bring a you know, different perspective on where money should be going and what type of solutions might actually work in communities. Um, so that's one call to action is to actually think about diversifying and sharing that power, bringing more people of color to boards and to senior leadership positions of foundations. With foundations, some people probably would be surprised if they knew how much money actually is really by law required to be um, paid out mm -hmm. on an annual basis. What are we talking about? So when you look at the total assets that foundations have in the United States, you're looking at a number around $80 billion, a billion with a B. It's a lot of assets. Now, we are the only country that has a uh, philanthropic sector that's structured like, like the one we have in the United States. And so um, any person of wealth, any family, a corporation can actually establish a private foundation as a way of not paying taxes. And so when you look at the $80 billion that are held in the coffers of foundations, that's money that otherwise would have gone into the public trust that would have paid for, you know, education, uh, roads, um, infrastructure, bridges, that type of thing. And so we have a system in this country where wealthy individuals cannot pay taxes on that money and put it into a private foundation. Now, the challenge, you know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that that should stop. But where there is a problem is that once these foundations are established, um, people are able to basically sit on that money and not invest it in the community. We have in, uh, a minimum requirement. It's called the IRS payout rule um, of 5%. And so most foundations pay out um, a rolling average uh, over three years of 5% of those assets. And so if you are a, you know, a foundation that is um, sitting on a couple hundred million dollars, only 5% of that money is actually going into the community. The other 95% is actually invested um, with the goal of making more money for those foundations. And so in many cases, the emphasis is on, is on actually um, you know, earning more wealth and building that, uh, those assets and that corpus versus actually investing that money in the community. Most people, I would assume you would agree, probably would be shocked to learn that. Yeah, absolutely. And when, when Congress enacted that payout rule, um, they had to do that because foundations were not giving away the money at all at that time, very little. And the 5% was intended to be a minimum. And there, there is a movement within philanthropy and the charity, charitable sector uh, to actually uh, expand that and to push for foundations to give beyond the 5%. But in most cases, there is, um, you know, you know, folks are pretty conservative about wanting to hold on to that corpus because the intention behind a lot of these foundations is to preserve wealth 
uh, to preserve family legacy and to um, have that money in perpetuity versus to, uh, you know, give that over to the community. When it comes to diversity, when we're talking about um, foundations in this country, country, you know, there have been lots of um, reports, um, conferences, task forces um, in the field of philanthropy that have looked at that. Um, but when you boil it down, what does it really show about who's actually being represented? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, uh, a very white sector, um, more so than, than other sectors. And I think, again, that relates back to the history of our country and how wealth was accumulated. And it's also, um, when you think about how wealth was accumulated in this country and the role that people of color and indigenous people played in supporting others um, to become wealthy, that's where I find there's a, a major conflict um, for me personally, being Native American. I know that a lot of uh, wealth and legacy in this country um, occurred through uh, stolen land in our history and colonization, uh, genocide, and slavery. And uh, now that families for generations have that wealth and they've started foundations, it's really sad to me that those resources are not fairly being redistributed or reinvested in communities of color. And so by far, and not just in philanthropy, when you look at other institutions that move and control money, you know, 88% of venture capitalists are white, um, 96% of angel investors are white. And so, um, you know, there are the 1% of this country and, and the wealthy of this country um, are by far white individuals because of what we call the race wealth gap. And we have policies and um, systems in this country that allow wealthy individuals to continue to uh, get wealthier uh, while we see a lot of poverty um, around the country and especially in communities of color. And so my push um, is that philanthropy has a role to play as well as finance and banking has a role to play in actually being um, reinvesting and supporting and moving resources into communities of color to help us close that race wealth gap. And in doing so, all of us are going to be a lot more prosperous. Edgar Villanueva is talking with us on our program. He is the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Um, interesting background, and I hope that you're finding this discussion to be a good one, too. After 8 o'clock, it is the Sports Edge program. It's Deal and Malusis along with the Football Sunday program. Always a fascinating presentation after our 9 o'clock update. And at 7.30 this morning, it's the NFL preview here on The Fan. Very interesting discussion we are having with Edgar Villanueva on our program. He is uh, talking with us about the book Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. With this book, what's your hope that those who read it take away from it? My hope is that we find ways to begin to come together in this country. Right now, we're living in a, in a time that feels very polarized. We're seeing a, a lot of hate, um, a lot of demonstrations of, of um, you know, divisiveness and disconnection. 
And, um, you know, there's not a lot happening right now that would actually bring us together as one humanity, as a united front in this country. And so um, my, my path and what I'm offering in this book is a prescription for helping that to happen. We need a lot of healing. As, as I mentioned, we have trauma from historical colonization, but we're also just being re-traumatized on a daily basis by things that are happening. And not just communities of color. I want the listeners to understand that when you look at colonization and you look at what's happening, um, that trauma is impacting all of us. Um, there, there, there's certain trauma that actually exists in white communities from um, our history as well that we have to recognize. It might be a different experience from, from communities of color, but we are all, um, we have all suffered and experienced uh, trauma at some level. And our only way out of this to restore that balance and uh, to bring us back together as, as one country is to think about a collective healing process. And there's a, there's a Lakota principle that uh, says all my relations, and that means that all of our suffering is mutual and all of our thriving is mutual. And if we can adopt that concept that regardless of your political background, regardless of uh, your, your, your class or where your family comes from or all those types of things that often separate us, if we can see each other as relatives, and being brothers and sisters, that's at least the start for us to acknowledge that common humanity and begin to uh, come together. How likely is it that that's actually going to happen? You know, I feel very hopeful. I, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's discouraging when I'm watching the news, right? But I actually feel very hopeful that I think that we're at a breaking point where folks are really exhausted from the way things have been. Um, and I see nowhere to go but up. Um, in the talks I'm doing around this book, um, around, you know, in the business community, in the philanthropic community, universities, I'm sensing a real hunger uh, for folks to begin to address the root causes of this pain. And, you know, in an acknowledgement that often the way that we're, we're showing up is um, in reaction to the pain that we're all holding. And so I'm finding very hopeful conversations and, and people taking action to begin to shift. And specifically in the, the world that I work in, which is philanthropy and, and moving money, I'm seeing a number of efforts to really democratize giving where people are really standing up and wanting to support uh, communities of color. And um, I've been involved in a number of um, efforts to create funds to move resources and to invest in Native youth and in Native communities. And in that area specifically, we are really seeing a great response. And so I think that we're at a place in this country where folks want to heal and think about uh, their, their role and orientation to money and how they might use their resources in a way that actually um, gets us a little bit closer to the type of country that we want to be. And a final question for you is, in the area of reparations, which we often hear discussion about this topic, mm-hmm. how could philanthropy have a constructive role in that movement? So philanthropy has always played a role in this country of funding sort of uh, out-of-the-box ideas um, that government may perhaps adopt. And so I think philanthropy can act in many ways as a laboratory. So the idea of reparations has come up many times, you know, on the Congress floor. 
There are other countries who are enacting certain forms of reparations for communities. And um, I think, so I think there's an opportunity with philanthropy having the explicit mission of addressing inequalities and um, helping to um, close the race, race wealth gap to um, fund some pilots and to help figure out what, how reparations might actually um, happen in a way that um, makes sense. Um, because, you know, the government, of course, is going to be shy to enact any type of new program where there's, where there's money attached to that, right? And so um, I think philanthropy, one, can, can kind of model reparations in the way that it gives, because currently it's not, it's not giving fairly. Um, and beyond modeling, possibly um, support the funding of um, some testing um, to, to actually see how we can make uh, reparations work in this country. Mm-hmm. Most interesting discussion, Edgar Villanueva. The book is entitled Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Thank you very much for your comments, and also thank you very much for your time, too. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. The book is out on October 16th. You can go to decolonizingwealth.com for more information. All proceeds will benefit Native youth, and I really appreciate your time and interest today. Thanks so much for joining us on our program. I'm Bob Solter. Hopefully we'll see you at 6 o'clock next Sunday morning. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. It's football Sunday after our 9 o'clock update, and you know what's coming up at 7.30 this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.